Hi, and welcome to The State of Shakespeare. I'm Jim Elliott. And I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And today on the program, we have Ted Lewis. Hello, Ted. Hello. Ted Lewis is just off a critically acclaimed run of Bedlam's Twelfth Night and What You Will, appearing in Repertory. Prior to that, he appeared in ART's production of The Tempest, which was co-directed by Teller of Penn & Teller fame. Ted is a founding member of the Innovative Bedlam Company. He appeared in the original runs of St. Joan and Hamlet, first at the Access Theater and then off-Broadway at the Lynn Redgrave Theater. We are excited to pick his brain about Twelfth Night and all things Bedlam. Welcome, Ted. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Ted, our listeners are familiar with Bedlam if they haven't already seen Bedlam shows because we had Eric Tucker on the program. Thanks to you. And in the meantime, Bedlam has been up to some shenanigans. This recent production was Twelfth Night and What You Will, not Twelfth Night or What You Will. Could you explain? Well, we were in Cambridge in January, and we were doing a run at the Central Square Theatre in Cambridge of St. Joan. And our plan while we were there performing was to begin rehearsals for Twelfth Night. Now, initially, because we normally do shows in rep, our initial season was Twelfth Night and uh, Clifford Odette's The Country Girl. And Andrus, one of the actresses in the troupe and also our producing director, she had been kind of going back and forth with the Odette's estate for some time. And she hadn't gotten a clear answer yet as to whether or not we had rights. So we did not get those rights because there was another group that was doing Rocket to the Moon. And they had spent thousands on marketing and they didn't think it would be fair and whatever. So there we were with just Twelfth Night. And we continued rehearsing. And eventually we were told that Eric had an idea to do Twelfth Night two different ways. And to literally use the title Twelfth Night or What You Will and have one of them be Twelfth Night and one What You Will. And we started rehearsing in Cambridge and kind of spun our wheels for a while trying to figure out what we were going to do on just one of them. (laughs) One is hard enough. It was really, really insane. And we knew going in that the rehearsal period was going to be crazy because with both Hamlet and St. Joan, we had about two months rehearsal or so for both. And with this run of the two Twelfth Nights, we had a month and a half to do both. So it was craziness. And I don't really think we started rehearsing What You Will, honestly, until about two weeks before tech. Some of the previews, the earlier previews would be kind of crazy. And we just kind of went on for the ride. Some of us played different characters. Some of us played the same characters, but differently. And we didn't really know up until last minute what we were going to be playing. And so there were people that were still learning lines during tech. And it was really an insane process. But I was, I'm so grateful that it, it went as well as it did. So Twelfth Night came first and What You Will came second. What, what are the differences between your Twelfth Night and your What You Will? <laughs> They're they're like two different planets, really. Uh, (laughs) Twelfth Night is very much, stylistically, what you would normally expect from Bedlam. It's very stripped down. There's a table, some chairs, no costumes, and some hats. Also in this version, Tom O'Keefe, one of our other wonderful Bedlam actors, plays guitar. He played Feste and played guitar, and there was singing in the show and what have you, so the music was very organic. So very kind of almost folksy and very stripped down. And What You Will is entirely different. What You Will is not at all what you would expect from Bedlam. It's stylized, it's heightened, it's dreamlike, whimsical. Les Dickert, who did the lighting, is just a genius. And we had a very small space at the Abington, the Lucille Strelzen Theater. So it's a very small space. But what Les was able to do with the lighting is incredible. But, you know, it was fully costumed and most of the music was either pre-recorded and played from the booth or it was actually played on a phonograph with old 
pop and jazz records. And everything was really, it was a completely different show stylistically. And did you play different characters or were you solely Malvolio? I was Malvolio in both. I additionally played smaller roles of the captain and the priest in them, but also in What You Will, I did also play Antonio. But Malvolio was the one that was the big one for me in both. And as with the productions, both interpretations are totally, totally different. Did you ever do one Malvolio in the other show by accident? I didn't, no, because they're so completely different. But I will say that tangent to that is that there were a couple of times in the show where some of the actors would start speaking lines from the other show as the character they were playing in the other show, you know, didn't. In Twelfth Night, Eric plays Sebastian and Tom plays Antonio. And there was a moment in Twelfth Night where Tom started speaking a Sebastian line. And it was like <laughs> little moments of confusion, but we were all quick enough to kind of get back on track. But yeah, it did kind of happen. But I didn't do it so much only because I just knew exactly who I was going in because they were so different. I'm curious about their evolution as you continue to work and develop the shows. Did you find that they tended to want to diverge and become different beasts increasingly as the process went on? Or did you find that there was a tendency for them to converge toward a more perfect synthesis of Twelfth Night and What You Will? Well, we certainly knew going in after we decided to do them two different ways that they were going to be very, very different. There were occasions where we'd be rehearsing and the actor had an idea or Eric had an idea where it was a really, really good idea, but Eric would say, you know what, I think that moment is better in that show or that moment we were working on yesterday in rehearsal for what you will i think that actually works better in 12th night so there were those little switch ups here and there but for the most part we knew right from the very beginning that they were just going to be very different and exactly what they were going to be individually we didn't know we had a lot of time early on where we had absolutely no idea so it's very much a process of going from zero to 100 and really not knowing at the beginning in a very short time i'm sure that this show has succeeded in different ways for their audiences mm-hmm. what were some of the ways that they that they succeeded differently? Well, you know, I certainly think the audience responded in a way that came from which version they were seeing. I know that Twelfth Night feels very intimate and very warm, and it's more modern, and it's more folksy, and it seemed like it was just more loose and kind of silly, but there was kind of a warmth and a vibe with the audience that was very different. What you will, because it's so stylized, I think there were times where the audience didn't know exactly what to think at first because it was so different. We always talked about how when the play opens, we're seen sitting on stage and we all have these white costumes and we all have very white makeup on and we all look very languorous and kind of depressed or whatever. So the show starts off in this almost sad way and it's a different kind of a vibe. The audience really responded. It was dictated by the style of each show, but it was very different. Very different. So I have a quick question because there's so many questions about Twelfth Night before we get to the character of Malvolio. What did you do with the Fabian and Feste confusion? Or I guess Feste starts the play and then Fabian takes his place. How did you tackle that? Yes. Well, in Twelfth Night, Fabian 
at the beginning of the box tree scene, Tom was already seated in the audience. He was hidden after the previous scene. And Eric literally tosses Tom, I think he says, Senor Fabian, and he tosses Tom Fabian's hat, which is this black cap that Tom would wear. And Tom took the hat and became Fabian in that moment. So that was how it was literally done in Twelfth Night. And I think some of Fabian's lines were absorbed in what you will. He was not a character in what you will. So I think some of the lines were cut or they were given to other characters. So you tackled Malvolio. Now, Malvolio is one of the more iconic characters in Shakespeare. He certainly is a foil, and he's got this memorable box tree scene in Act 2, Scene 5. What's your view on tackling such a well-known, iconic role? How did you approach it? Well, I mean, it's really similar, my feelings when I approach something like this, to when I did Polonius or Horatio. It's dictated by what we're all doing as a group and the style of what we're doing. And it's a lot of exploration. My tendency is to usually be very nervous when I'm first starting rehearsals. And so because of that, I tend to fall back on kind of a conventional thing. And then, you know, as the weeks go on, I'll find more ideas. So, of course, there's always, I think this is the way it is with Shakespeare and certainly with a character like Malvolio, there's always an image, a very strong image in your head of who this guy is. And so when I started to do Malvolio, it was very much this uptight butler kind of a guy. And, and so I started with this very kind of conventional image of Malvolio. And one rehearsal, Eric kind of threw out there, he'll throw these little curveballs every now and then. He said, play him like the Fonz. <laughs> and it was like, the Fonz? I'm like, no, Really? He's like, well, not necessarily like the Fonz, but play him like a guy who knows he's the shit, this kind of L.A. guy. And I did it in this short period in this one rehearsal. And I thought, well, that was really fun. And even though the character never ended up being that kind of I'm the shit kind of a guy, it certainly gave me a key to possibly doing him another way, which is what happened. Because I remember being in Cambridge and having breakfast and I had the script with me and I suddenly thought, oh, he's a bodyguard, you know? <laughs> And, and so he ended up being kind of Olivia's bodyguard and this guy who was kind of a loser, kind of a guy who was angry at the world and kind of tightly wound and was in love with this woman. And so that's where we started with him, that he was this bodyguard kind of a guy. And then when we rehearsed the box tree scene the first time, it was odd because I didn't know how to do that guy and do the box tree scene because, you know, it's usually played for laughs and comes in kind of strutting like a peacock kind of a thing. And it didn't really work. And so Eric kind of said, no, I think this one is about him playing it totally straight, being this guy who's so thrilled at the fact that the woman that he's been in love with for a while has, in effect, said that she loves him, that he's this kind of guy who doesn't know what to do with himself. So it really came from a real place. And, and Malvolio is not played for laughs in Twelfth Night. It's not at all. It's played totally straight. And he's not the funniest guy. He's really a sad guy. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's kind of tragic. The other Malvolio in What You Will, he started kind of out of the more conventional Malvolio, but taken to kind of expressionistic levels. I mean, he's so haughty and he's so wound up and he's literally has his nose in the air all the time and is sniffing and tugging at his bow tie and has this little tick where he's almost trying to get his hair out of his face. And it's very expressionistic and has a transatlantic accent. And that came at some point during rehearsals where Eric was like, I want you to try him kind of with a transatlantic. And I didn't know exactly how to do a transatlantic accent. And we started out 
out with Eric saying, do Catherine Hepburn. That's hilarious. Yeah. And so, you know, he started doing this kind of thing, very nasal. And that really was where he stayed, this completely ridiculous figure. And it's just completely diametrically opposed to the other Malvolio. But, you know, you kind of find all these little quirks. Coming out the other end, having done two different versions, do you have a different view of Malvolio now than when you did going in? Yes, I think the audience did as well, certainly after watching Twelfth Night. Even though I will say that he ends up an ultimately tragic character in the end of What You Will as well. Because basically, we thought, you know, what if this guy is made fun of and put in prison and what have you? What happens when you take that to the full extent? You know, you've taken this man's dignity away from him, and that's that's a tragic and very painful thing. So you could play it for laughs, and you can also play it as what happens when it goes the whole way. And it is tragic. You know, in the end, when he has that speech with Olivia in the end where he says, you know, Madam, you have done me wrong, notorious wrong. I mean, however you have played the role, it's a tragic end for him. I certainly think that it's a practical joke turned cruel. And whether or not he's deserving of the cruelty is the big question. And I guess that comes down to how you play the role of Malvolio. There were a lot of times where audience members came up to me afterwards and they would say, we started laughing and then, oh my God, we shouldn't be laughing. I feel terrible laughing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, of course, Shakespeare wrote him as a dig at the Puritans, all of whom hated theater. So for Shakespeare, initially, it was very much just, here's this character, we can make fun of this guy. And I think a lot of people have always said that the punishment that is meted out to him is kind of out of proportion with what he's been before, that it seems excessively cruel. And it is. So why not explore what that means for this guy go the whole way with it well i'd love to hear some of the malvolios the malvolio from 12th night and the malvolio from what you will with some of the text that you've chosen to share with us today okay (laughs) so i think i will start with the 12th night malvolio tis but fortune all is fortune mariah once told me she did affect me and i have heard herself come thus near that should she fancy it should be one of my complexion Besides, she uses me with a more exalted respect than anyone else that follows her. What should I think of? To be Count Malvolio. There is example for it. The lady of the street, she married the yeoman of the wardrobe. Having been three months married to her, sitting in my state, calling my officers about me in my branched velvet gown, having come from a daybed where I had left Olivia sleeping, and then to have the humor of state, and after a demure travel of regard, telling them, I know my place, as I would they should do theirs, to ask for my kinsman, Toby. Seven of my people with an obedient start make out for him. I frown the while and perchance wind up my watch or play with my, some rich jewel. Toby approaches, curtsies there to me. I extend my hand to him thus, <laughs> quenching my familiar smile with an austere regard of control, saying, Cousin Toby, my fortunes having cast me on your niece, give me this prerogative of speech. You must amend your drunkenness. Beside, you waste the treasure of your time with a foolish knight, one Sir Andrew. Terrific. That was Ted Lewis doing Malvolio from Act Two, Scene Five of Twelfth Night. He is very straightforward. Yes, very much so. And now you'll hear the what you will, Malvolio. Tis but fortune. All is fortune. Mariah once told me she did affect me. And I have heard herself come thus near that, should she fancy, it should be one of my complexion. Besides, 
She uses me with a more exalted respect than anyone else that follows her. What should I think on? To be Count Malvolio. There is example for it. The lady of the Strachey married the yeoman of the wardrobe. Having been three months married to her, sitting in my state, calling my officers about me in my branched velvet gown, having come from a daybed where I have left Olivia sleeping, and then to have the humour of state, and after a demure travel of regard, telling them I know my place, as I would they should be theirs, to ask for my kinsman, Toby. Seven of my people with an obedient start make up for him. I frown the while, and perchance wind up my watch or play with my <laughs> some rich jewel. Toby approaches, curtsies there to me. I extend my hand to him thus, quenching my familiar smile with an austere regard of control, saying, Cousin Toby, my fortunes having cast me on your niece, give me this prerogative of speech. <laughs> you must amend your drunkenness. Besides, you waste the treasure of your time with a foolish knight, one Sir Andrew. And that was Ted Lewis doing Malvolio from Act 2, Scene 5 of What You Will. Well, based on just listening to it, boy, are they different people. Very different. Yeah. It's a funny thing because, you know, we all had to shave our beards or whatever, our facial hair. They wanted it very particular for what you will. And for what I did, they said, you know, could you have a little mustache? And I said, sure. And that helped to inform the what you will Malvolio. But strangely enough, it also informed the Twelfth Night guy because automatically I just saw this guy that works at the post office, you know, and he's, he's that guy. He's that guy. He doesn't really have much going on and he's never going to make the big score. And, and so he ended up being that guy. So, yeah, they're very different. I hear some vocal differences and some vocal similarities between the two characters. They both speak with a rapid and clipped tempo. Yes. The Twelfth Night Malvolio seems to be placed in a lower register. Correct. And the What You Will Malvolio, his placement is in a higher register, obviously. The What You Will Malvolio is more melodic sounding. Very much so. He's much more florid. He's more flamboyant. If you see him in the play, he has this white pants, white shirt, white sweater, cream color jacket, and a white bow tie, and, you know, his hair is slicked back. He's very florid and flamboyant and certainly more musical than the other guy. He's just kind of the regular guy. <laughs> My question for you as an actor is the What You Will Malvolio, it feels like he has the freedom to explore a wider vocal range than the Twelfth Night Malvolio. Did you feel constrained in any way in performing the Twelfth Night Malvolio in ways that you might have not felt with what you will? Or is that speculation on my part? You know, I didn't feel constrained because Twelfth Night, I think for all of us, Twelfth Night was certainly much more, for lack of a better term, it's more naturalistic. And so it's kind of taking the language and not diminishing the poetry or anything, but it's a little more naturalistic. And so it's kind of however this guy speaks. But, you know, what you will was stylistically just a larger show. And we could go a little further with the characters. And, and we wanted them to be on not just a different show, but on another planet. And so I never felt constrained. I always felt that this is that guy. And strangely enough, I would say there were times when I would be doing this naturalistic Malvolio and saying those particular words felt strange, doing them so naturalistically, but it ended up working. And strangely enough, that very kind of underplayed Malvolio, he was the one that people really responded to even more than the other. They liked them both, thankfully. I'm glad that they both resonated with people. But in particular, it was the tragic 
kind of everyman Malvolio that people really responded to. And why, who knows? But there you go. I think that we've all daydreamed and we've all had aspirations of greatness. He just happens to be sharing it in front of some people who are listening to him. Absolutely. And it does take a strange turn as it goes on. But I have some questions about the text. The first one would be the lady of the Strachey married the yeoman of the wardrobe. That's got to be a tough one for any actor to tackle because what does it mean? Yes, exactly. I remember there was a note. I don't remember exactly what it was. I think it might have been in the Oxford, but because, of course, we were trying to figure out what the hell it meant. And there was some strange occurrence in recent history at the time where there was, I think, some noblewoman who married her servant. That was a phrase that I don't think a lot of people know exactly where it came from. But I mean, the image is there. You can see what he's saying, that we don't know exactly what the straight she was. I don't think anyone has ever figured out exactly what it was. But you have this image of a lady marrying her servant. It could happen, <laughs> you know? Right. There's precedent. And then one of the more popular comic moments in the Twelfth Night What Malvolio must have been interesting to tackle when he says in our line 55 and 56 and perchance wind up my watch or play with my some rich jewel. Often that's referred to as something naughty. Yes, the family jewel. Yes. <laughs> we didn't go for that. There were certainly moments in the play where, because there are a few of them where they're referring to private partners. These be her C's, her U's, and her T's. I mean, you know, all that. But we didn't end up doing it with Malvolio on this one, just because it didn't really fit with the guy that we were doing in either version. It just felt like Malvolio wouldn't have gone there. You know? so, right. so we didn't really do that in our version. So another question that arises between these various interpretations, the stylized one versus the naturalistic one, is that Malvolio has to motivate the pauses which allow for the eavesdroppers to have their asides and their private moments. Yes. In the stylized version, that would seem to me that that would be somewhat easy to do, to invent business. In the naturalistic version, what motivates those pauses? Well, the way that we did it basically was that we didn't do it conventionally. We had, in the Twelfth Night version, the character of Toby and Andrew and Mariah, I believe, and Fabian were kind of sitting in the audience and they would do these asides, but I never really heard any of them. I would just kind of continue going because really the way it was was a lot of the asides would kind of create laughter. I did not notice the asides in Twelfth Night. In What You Will, there were moments, and some of them were cut in What You Will, but we had moments where... I would kind of turn around and look behind me or turn around. So it was always kind of like, what did I just hear? It was funny because the space that we were using was so small that we really had to be creative in terms of creating a distance where they would be eavesdropping and not be seen. So the audience had to kind of suspend their disbelief, but we also had to come up with a way where they would be eavesdropping and pretend that I was in the distance. So they had to kind of put me out in the distance, but literally they were right behind. So it was kind of a funny little creative way to do that. Well, certainly the small space is challenging. And as a member of Bedlam, you're very adept at using the space in inventive ways. So that must have been exciting to see. It was. One of the early previews for Twelfth Night, I remember it was quite moving because Twelfth Night, again, there was a particular vibe that that version had because the stylization, you know, if you're doing a show that's particularly stylized and you're doing it in a small space, that does tend to create some kind of distance, whatever it is that you're doing. And Twelfth Night did not have that kind of distance because it was not stylized in that way. And so I really felt, because none of us leave the stage during Twelfth Night, 
So there were times where I'd be sitting there and kind of watching the action, and it was really almost very moving to see these things happen and have it be so close up to the audience. And that was really an element of Twelfth Night that I enjoyed the most, not just in terms of the space, but also the vibe of that particular production. You really felt close to the audience, and they felt close to you. And it is an intimate play. You said that earlier, and I think that that probably adds to the intimacy. In the play, Malvolio moves between prose and verse. Did either of your Malvolios change as a result of the switch between the two? I don't know that he did, particularly. I mean, I know that usually there's a reason for changing it. He's really, whatever version you're in, the same guy. I think that, for instance, when he says, Madam, you have done me wrong speech toward the end, there is that kind of heightened quality to his emotions at that time. Ted, what's next for you? I'm pretty sure I'm going to be a part of the next Bedlam season, which is going to be in opening in the fall. What that season is, we do not know yet. I think there might be one Shakespeare in a modern, or that could be totally changed by tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> Fun for you. Ted Lewis, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, guys. It's been a pleasure, Ted. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you. I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And I'm Jim Elliott. And thank you for listening to The State of Shakespeare. Thanks for joining us for the State of Shakespeare podcast. We invite you to visit stateofshakespeare.com for more episodes, information about each of our guests, and the Shakespeare text you heard on the program, and much more. And we welcome you to join the discussion by liking us on Facebook. That's www.stateofshakespeare.com. Thanks for listening.